Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. The Comb is all about people and it's all about surprising stories. It's all about finding out what's really going on and it's all about Africa. It's a brand new podcast from the BBC World Service and you can find it by searching for The Comb wherever you got this podcast. Hello and welcome to NewsHour. It's coming to you live from the BBC World Service studios in central London. I'm Tim Franks. The sound of China's crackdown in Hong Kong is still rumbling around the world. Its new, wide-ranging security law appears to have led to a major reassessment of the UK's relationship with China. There's growing speculation that in the next couple of weeks, the British government may decide to change its mind and bar the Chinese company Huawei from helping build the UK's 5G network. And that follows the immediate opening of a path to British citizenship for about 3 million Hong Kong residents. Today, China's ambassador in London, Ye Xiaoming, used a news conference to address that offer in particular. This move constitutes a gross interference in China's internal affairs and openly trample on the basic norms governing international relations. The Chinese side has lost solemn representation to the UK side to express its grave concern and the strong opposition. I want to emphasize that Hong Kong is a part of China. Hong Kong affairs are China's internal affairs and broke no external interference. The ambassador then made a wider point and a graver warning, quoting the former US National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski. If we make China an enemy, China will become an enemy. So we want to be your friend. We want to be your partner. But if you want to make China a hostile country, you have to bear the consequences. Further details of the new security law came out today. The police can now search properties and detain without a warrant. And education officials in Hong Kong are reported to have pledged to remove all books promoting the territory's independence from schools and university campuses. The authorities also say they will regularly check students' textbooks to make sure they comply with the new security laws. One of those whose books were removed from the shelves of public libraries over the weekend was the young pro-democracy activist Joshua Wong. Today, he and two other prominent campaigners appeared in court to face charges of illegal assembly relating to a protest from last year. Joshua Wong gave a defiant speech outside court. We know now it's an uphill battle, but no matter, we have our friends in the global community continue their international advocacy. Or in Hong Kong, we still urge people to vote on the upcoming primary election schedule on this weekend. We also encourage more people in Hong Kong or in the global community continue to let Beijing aware that kowtow to China is not an option and we must stand up and fight. So is the West moving into a new, less cooperative, perhaps more confrontational relationship with China? And does that leave individual countries at risk of retribution from this increasingly assertive superpower? Tobias Elwood is a British Member of Parliament with the Governing Conservative Party and he chairs the Parliamentary Committee on Defence. Firstly, there's the security aspect of Huawei as a Chinese company. Can we actually trust them in our critical 
national infrastructure. And given the fact that they have a spurious relationship with intelligence services in China, they've also participated in monitoring and surveilling various parts of China and and the uh, ethnic minorities. Is this a company that we really want to do business with? There's a practical aspect of this, which is perhaps the big change, which is the United States imposing sanctions. That has a direct impact on a lot of the SMEs, the smaller companies, some of them British, that work with Huawei, because it now would be illegal for them to continue business. So that's a factor we have to bear in mind. And then thirdly, there's a wider geopolitical issue here, which is if we are to stand up for anything, if we can have a sense of purpose of being in the West, should we continue watching the erosion of our rules-based order or being tested at least to the limits by China that is certainly following its own geopolitical agenda? What in that case do you make of the comments of the Chinese ambassador in Britain today, where he has said, I mean, he quoted, uh, speaking of Brzezinski, um, that uh, if we make China an enemy, China will become an enemy. Uh, I mean, it was it was fairly forthright. What, what, yeah. what do you think? Well, as I say, what do you make of that? What do you think the British response should be to that? This is China, again, dictating international terms and saying, if you want to be our friend, this is how we have to operate. And we in the West need to be less risk averse, less timid about actually dealing with China. The reason why China has got to its position so far is because we haven't stood up to it over the last sort of 10 to 12 years. We've hopefully you know, wanted them to mature into this global stakeholder, this responsible citizen that actually advocates and promotes international law. And it's clear, perhaps because of the uh, issues to do with COVID-19, when the world got to see a little bit more how China operates internally, that they have no prospects of ever joining the rest of us in the West as to the standards and values, international accountability, the you know democratic rights and so forth. Simply not going to happen. We are on a long-term collision course with China, and we're being forced to have a very difficult conversation today. I mean, that's very strong. No prospects of of working with China on a collision course with China. I mean, you've got at the same time the most senior official in the foreign ministry, in the foreign office, Sir Simon MacDonald, um, saying, uh, I think it was in, in April, he, he told a, a parliamentary committee, no problem that the world faces today can be addressed, still less solved, without the active participation of China. China is critical across the full policy waterfront. I mean, you're suggesting that we just have to accept that the world needs to sort things out without China. No, 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 quite the contrary. I'm saying that we can't avoid confronting China. We cannot avoid, if we continue to ignore and live in denial that China is on a particular path, it is very, very clear what it wants to achieve. It is actually more and more countries are being woven into its way of thinking through the One Belt, One Road initiative, the debt trap diplomacy, as it's now called. There's others through the digital relationships that they have that they get tied into long term projects, which means that more and more countries are less and less critical about China's long term objectives. And that actually encourages us to go towards a bipolar world that isn't good for either China in the long term or indeed the rest of the world. So the big question is, what do we do about it? And the difference perhaps between the Cold War that I fear we're about to enter and the one that we've just had over the last few decades is that China's Achilles heel is its requirement to have a relationship with the rest of the world through trade. You know, Russia, Soviet Russia was quite independent. Therefore, it's in everybody's interest to then stand up to China 
and they actually respect coordination of uh, and res- national res- international resolve. They actually exploit division and weakness. And uh, there are like-minded countries, the Five Eyes countries you know, spring to mind immediately, that are willing to collectively get together and say, we should really be far more assertive in what we believe in and recognize that China is taking its gloves off. We've seen its activity in Hong Kong, what it's doing in the South China Sea, surrounding Taiwan, which will be its next focal point. You know, what do we need to recognize that China really is on a collision course with what we believe in in the West? The senior British Conservative MP Tobias Elwood. The ructions from the new Hong Kong security law aren't confined to the people of that territory or the former colonial power, Britain. Some of the world's social media giants have clearly been shaken. WhatsApp, Facebook, Telegram and others have decided to suspend all cooperation with the Hong Kong authorities while they review the scope of the anti-terrorism legislation. Paul Moser is the Asia technology correspondent for The New York Times. The big thing is at this point, they don't really know what to do because Hong Kong's legal system basically changed overnight with this new law. Speech is criminalized in a way that it just wasn't before. And so they're kind of scrambling to respond because what's going to start happening is they're going to get requests from Hong Kong law enforcement telling them to take things down or to give over user data about people. And so what Facebook has done specifically is said that they're stopping handing over any data to the Hong Kong authorities for now as they reevaluate the law. They're pushing the pause button and saying, we're going to look at this and then decide what we're going to do. The rest of the companies are probably doing something like that, but they haven't been as public about it. Because the rules up to now had been, as with other jurisdictions around the world, I guess, when a national authority comes to Facebook or WhatsApp and says, we need your help on a terrorism inquiry, at that point... Is it just assumed that Facebook or WhatsApp or whoever will hand over the the information or is there a sort of a, a filleting process? Well, so it depends on, on where you are. You know, if you're in a place where there's a lot of human rights abuses, a place like Vietnam, say, they may not turn it over and they may not cooperate. In China, this has been moot because those websites are banned in China. So there's not a lot of data to hand over. What's unique about Hong Kong is all of these websites are massive in Hong Kong. So they have tons of data and the government would very much like that. But the thing about this law is that it brands a bunch of different types of vandalism as terror crimes. So if you, if you break a streetlight with political intent, then you can be put away for 10 years for terrorism. That just completely changes the legal landscape. And so now all of a sudden they're having to kind of review what Hong Kong is. Is it the way it was before where they're willing to talk to authorities because there's rule of law or has rule of law basically evaporated? And are we at a point now where you have to think of Hong Kong the way you would think of China, where you don't want to give any of this data away because it could be used to persecute people for their political speech, for instance? And in terms of the calculation for these tech behemoths that we're talking about. I mean, I guess you say these websites are are massive in Hong Kong, but of course, Hong Kong itself, a territory of just a few million, it's it's not massive in terms of these companies' turnovers. And and therefore, I guess, without wanting to be too cynical about it, their calculation could be, well, if we end up being booted out or banned, so be it. You know, it's a little bit more complicated than that because, I mean, they're caught between the United States and China on this. Google, Facebook, and Twitter, all of them run a lot of ad business in China still. So they're still making a lot of money in China. At the same time, if they were to uh, not do anything and just go along with this, in the United States, they're going to get a lot of grief from politicians who have 
basically, you know, bipartisanly condemned this new national security law. So they're basically caught between two superpowers in a fight over freedom of speech and, you know, and, and, and sort of basic civil liberty protections. And on the one hand, they could lose a lot of money if China gets angry. And this Facebook statement is likely to make China angry. At the same time, back home, they could face other kinds of regulatory pressures if they don't do something to push back against this or at least change their policies. They are not in a good position. And, and while Hong Kong may be a small market, it is nonetheless deeply connected to China and, and their China operations. Google has quite a few employees in China. Those are, are at stake in all of this. And Google and Twitter themselves, have they said what they are planning to do as far as Hong Kong is concerned? Or do you just think that they are likely now to follow the others? Twitter has told me they're still looking at it. I'm pretty sure Google's doing something of the same, though I haven't heard from them yet. And so, I, I, you know, I think everybody's kind of sitting back and trying to figure out what to do. And Facebook came out and said, we're trying to figure out what to do, so we're just going to stop cooperating for now. And it does put a lot of pressure on these other companies because as the U.S. wakes up today and looks around, you're going to see Facebook out there saying, whoa, 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 we're going to, you know, we're putting pause on this. And then Google and Twitter are just completely silent and, you know, Apple as well. And so I, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to raise the issue in a way and, and probably put a spotlight on these companies to make a decision or to be more publicly forthcoming about what they will do. That was Paul uh, Mosur. He's Asia Tech correspondent for The New York Times, speaking to me from Taiwan. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC. Coming up on the programme, we'll speak to uh, a remarkable man. He's a black musician and activist who for decades has been befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan and, through the, his uh, befriending of them, often getting them to quit. I want to learn what it is they fear about a Jewish person, about a black person, mm-hmm. about a gay person, about a Muslim, about whatever it is they don't like. And once you understand their fears, then you can figure out how to dispel them. That man is Daryl Davis. You can hear much more from him in about uh, 20 minutes. One headline to tell you, um, it's from our BBC Newsroom. UN experts have warned that diseases which jump from other animals to humans will continue to increase if human behaviour does not change. This is the BBC World Service and live from London, NewsHour, with me, Tim Franks. This may be a pandemic, but not all countries, all regions have been hit equally. Latin America seems to be suffering particularly badly. Today came the news that in Bolivia, the health minister, Edie Roca, has tested positive for the coronavirus, the third member of the cabinet to be infected in just four days. Bolivia, a country of 11 million, which has been in some political turmoil this year, has about 38,000 confirmed cases. I've been speaking to the journalist and columnist Raul Penaranda in La Paz, and he told me uh, first more about those ministers who've been getting sick. Suddenly we have three ministers in four days with this. I think that they travel a lot around the country and maybe that's a problem, especially with the Minister of Health. She's always surrounded by doctors, but this is showing the crisis that we have in the country. In Bolivia, many people think that this is not a real problem. Even some political leaders said that this was a creation of the capitalist, uh, a lie of the capitalist world. 
things like that. So there are a group of people that don't believe that, that this is serious. And and other sector that is really, really worried about this. But also, I think that it's important to say that in, in Bolivia, 70% of the people work in the informal market. So they have to go out to work, right? So they cannot stay at home as the authorities would like. Raul, I mean, that's something that we've been hearing so much about um, the, the response in in Latin America is that obviously so many people are, are part of the informal sector that they simply have to go out to work, have to go out pretty much daily to buy food and therefore expose themselves potentially to risk. Um, how badly has Bolivia been hit by the new coronavirus and, and how has the health system itself managed to cope or not cope? We are in a much better situation of our neighbors, Peru and, and Chile. Also, uh, compared to Chile, in Chile, have this, they have more than 200,000 cases. But the problem is that our health system is much weaker. With lesser cases, at least our public health system collapsed. If, uh, if you want to, to get a bed, if you have uh, the coronavirus, really no one would accept you in any hospital right now. Our system is much weaker because we're much poorer than Peru or Chile. You just said that if you had coronavirus, no one would really accept you in a public hospital. Is that right? If you turned up with COVID-19, what you'd, you'd be, or suspected COVID-19, you'd be turned away because what the hospitals are full. Exactly. The hospitals are full, so they, they wouldn't accept you. And we had cases of some people dying in the in the lobby of the hospitals or by the sidewalk waiting outside the hospital or in the street or in in your house right because you know that no one's going to accept you people that went from one hospital to another this story was on the on the newspapers then he went home and died at home so that's what we have my son is a doctor and he was called from a local hospital because they had many cases of doctors and nurses infected that they needed more people. And they were really almost desperately calling doctors to go to, the, to that hospital because so many doctors were uh, infected. And is there a political cost being paid by the government for this? I was reading that the former health minister is under house arrest for corruption charges over buying overpriced and I think also faulty ventilators. Are the difficulties that you're talking about meaning that the government, this interim government, is is losing popularity? 170 respirators that the government bought with uh, overpriced. So that was uh, huge. But also other scandals. It has been very, very hard for, for the government to organize. Many ministers, cabinet ministers lasted like one week or two. And the popularity of the president, it was very high at the beginning when she took uh, power. But now the feeling, the sense is that uh, she's lost uh, popularity. And has she said, Janine Agnes, when the elections will be? Because clearly they they were postponed again and again because of the virus but has she has she suggested when they might take place the elections are going to be on september 6th the 6th a new law was approved to have elections on september and probably that's the that's the final date because they knew that it was impossible to have the elections first in may and then in august Raul panaranda journalist uh, speaking to me from la paz in bolivia 
One of the more dismissive judgments which can be passed on theatrical performances is when the artist is said to have dialed it in, just not bothered expending any effort, in other words. But dialing it in is exactly what one US opera company is offering to do in an effort to get round virus-led restrictions on performances. For a small fee, the company members of on-site opera will sing down the phone to you. Among them, the soprano Jennifer Zetlin. It's a little bit like a singing telegram in a way, where we call someone and uh, start with a little conversation where we get settled in and, and I'm in character as the beloved of the person I'm calling and uh, hopefully the person I call plays along. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And we work our way through what's sort of a lightly scripted conversation, uh, but it, it, it can be sort of open and free until um, we find our way into the music. Okay. And the music is Beethoven's song cycle, Andy Fernel Geliebter. It is indeed. Right. Um, why choose that? I mean, I guess one of the things about it is that it's, it's relatively short, so you don't have to go on forever. <laughs> but, um, but why did you alight on that? So it's actually really the, the perfect uh, song cycle, I think, for this time, um, for many reasons. First of all, I believe this is a, a big Beethoven year. This is, a, I think, 250th anniversary. Uh, so Beethoven is sort of in the forefront of musicians' minds all over. The songs themselves are about being kept at a distance. Uh, so it seemed there was no better option, actually, for um, this sort of isolated, pandemic-ridden time that we are in. We're all isolated from each other. So that sort of pointed to this piece in particular. And in terms of um, you coming up with this idea or, or your company coming up with this idea i i, I realized that you as with so many other live performers all over the world and, and not just musicians but but artists of all stripes i mean you've been terribly hurt by the pandemic and by not being able to put on performances um i don't want to be sort of too grubby about it but how far have you been able to you know raise anything like the the sort of money that you need to stay afloat well, uh, obviously, it's a very, very difficult time. Um, I think, at least in the U.S., a lot of the smaller um, independent arts organizations who are sort of used to being, um, maybe the right word is scrappy, about how you raise funds and uh, move forward with um, creating art in, within sort of financial limitations, are actually, uh, you know, working their way through it. I feel a little bit similarly about my own career as a freelance artist, um, that I'm sort of used to putting together the pieces in order to make it work. So I think everybody is sort of working on making it work in their own way. And I, I love that the that the people at Onsite Opera came up with this idea. I'm, I'm so honored to be one of the extremely few singers who has, is working right now and um, to be part of it. Jennifer Zetlin, and uh, this is what it sounds like if you uh, manage to get... Actually, I think they're very hard to get now, these tickets, uh, for a phone performance of Beethoven's Andy Ferner Geliebter.
latest on news allegations of police brutality in Mexico. Before that, a robotic scientist which could increase the pace of scientific discovery has been developed by researchers at the University of Liverpool in the UK. The technology is part of what the Royal Society of Chemistry has called a new digital age for science. The organisation says that AI and robotics will be vital in keeping research and development, including the search for coronavirus treatments, moving quickly at a time of social distancing. Our science correspondent Victoria Gill has this report. Doesn't get bored, doesn't get tired, works around the clock, doesn't need holidays. While PhD student and chemist Benjamin Bocher has been locked down at home, an experiment he designed has been operated by a robotic colleague. This robot is able to work autonomously on its own um, while I'm at home or I'm at the office. And in this way, I can run experiments from my desk anywhere. Ben can send his instructions from his laptop to the robot, and he can even see what it's doing through cameras all over the lab. I've come to pay a visit to Ben's chemistry lab, and it is very large and very brightly lit. It is spotlessly clean, and it has the usual chemistry paraphernalia, so there are lab benches all around, and there are fume cupboards, racks of glassware... But there are no humans working here, just this one robotic scientist, which looks pretty busy. It's a large box on small wheels. You can't actually see the wheels, but it's moving itself around the lab. And it has an impressive-looking robotic arm that's currently placing racks of tiny glass vials into a big device that looks like some kind of incubator. So I assume some chemistry tests going on in there. And it's even pressing the buttons on that incubator to start the experiment machines operating other machines in the age of social distancing this 100,000 pound robotic scientist developed by Andy Cooper at the University of Liverpool has taken on a whole new role supermarkets use robots to sort your groceries Um, cars are made using robots but this robot actually uses artificial intelligence to make decisions about what it does so it does experiments it collects data And then it decides what to do next. So in that sense, it works like a scientist rather than a simple piece of automation. This is a tremendous new age for scientists. According to Dr Deirdre Black from the Royal Society of Chemistry, robotics is just one element of a digital revolution that will keep scientific discovery moving as quickly as possible, even though far fewer scientists will be able to get back into their labs. So could these machines do all of the science? Absolutely not. This is about human beings harnessing all of these digital technologies so that they can explore bigger and tackle much more complex problems like decarbonisation, preventing and treating disease, making the quality of our air cleaner. But we'll always need people. That was Deirdre Black from the Royal Society of Chemistry ending that report from our science correspondent Victoria Gill. This is News Hour, live from the BBC World Service with me, Tim Franks. Mexico is a violent country. More than 30,000 people are murdered each year. And recently there have been protests over the police's role in that epidemic of brutality. 
The demonstrations uh, that there have been have followed a number of deaths of detainees in police custody, including one man who died when a policeman knelt on his neck in an echo of that killing of George Floyd in the United States. In another recent case to cause widespread shock, a US-born teenage soccer player was shot by a policeman from a parked patrol car. Our correspondent Will Grant has this report. A final goal for 16-year-old footballer Alexander Martinez Gomez. In a tragic goodbye, teammates of the US-born semi-professional player carried his coffin onto the pitch and placed it in front of the goal. One of them passed the ball onto the boy's casket and it ricocheted into the net, past the despairing dive of the goalkeeper. As they smothered the coffin with hugs and tears, the question of how he came to be shot in the head by local police in the western state of Oaxaca still hung over the heart-rending scene. At his wake, his mother, Virginia Gomez, blamed trigger-happy police officers for his death, who fired on him from a patrol car as he chatted with his friends outside a gas station. They shot him like he was a common criminal, she cried. He was a sportsman, he had a scholarship. All he dreamed of was playing football. This happened here in our town, she continued. These are the people who are supposed to look after us. A policeman has now been arrested over the shooting. In a statement, the state attorney general's office said that There will be no impunity in this case or any other in which members of the police forces have harmed the well-being and the lives of Oaxacan families. Police brutality is an ongoing and serious problem in Mexico. Few in the country can forget the case in late 2014 of the 43 student teachers in Guerrero State who disappeared, feared dead and who were last seen in the hands of the local police. Many in the small Oaxacan town echoed Virginia's call for justice. Meanwhile, in Mexico City, a much larger protest over police brutality turned ugly. Demonstrations were held after a young man, Giovanni Lopez, was killed while in police custody in Guadalajara. Radical protesters broke windows and threw petrol bombs in Mexico City, and a police officer was set alight in Guadalajara. Mobile phone footage taken by people who were with Giovanni Lopez that night showed he was detained, ostensibly for not wearing a face mask. The next day, he died in hospital of his wounds. Early this year, another man, Yair Lopez, was killed when a police officer knelt on his neck in a case with obvious parallels to the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. The BBC has repeatedly approached the Public Security Ministry for an interview, but no one has been made available for comment. Before his burial, a group of friends sang to Alexander Martinez around his coffin, a Mexican lament for a young man who had high hopes of a life in sport. It was a life cut short by policemen who were either unaware or unconcerned with who they were shooting at, Another sign of a country where a process of genuine police reform is long overdue. Will Grant with that report on uh, allegations of police brutality in Mexico. One of the truisms of US politics, perhaps US society, is that it's tribal, that views are becoming ever more entrenched, perhaps in some cases more extreme. 
and that those tribes rarely talk or engage with each other with anything short of hostility or suspicion. If that's right, then Daryl Davis has to be a gleaming exception. He's a black musician, writer and campaigner who for the past 35 years has met dozens, maybe hundreds of members of the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacist outfits. Not just met them, but befriended them and then seen them quit these groups. You might say it's an unusual pursuit of his. How did it start? Well, it started uh, based on the background that I have. I grew up as a child of parents in the U.S. Foreign Service. Uh, Every two years, you know, we lived in a different country. I grew up as an American embassy brat. And then in between, I would come back home and then get assigned to another country, two years, come back home. So when I was overseas, like in uh, elementary school and things like that, um, my classes were full of kids from all over the world. And uh, that to me was the norm. But when I would come back home after the two-year assignment, I was in either an all-black school or a black and white school, meaning the still segregated or the newly integrated. And there was not the amount of diversity in the classroom. And one of the times when I came home, I was in a parade in which I was the only uh, black person in the parade. And I was age 10. And everybody was happy. Everything was good until we got to one point in the march where uh, maybe four or five people, a couple adults, a couple kids, were throwing things at me. And I didn't understand it. I had no clue why this was happening. And it was later explained to me by my parents that uh, this was racism. And believe it or not, I had never heard the word racism. I had no idea what that meant. And when they explained it to me, I refused to accept it. Uh, I thought my parents were, were, for whatever reason, not telling me the truth. Uh, You know, because my 10 year old brain could not wrap itself around the idea that somebody who didn't even know me, had never even spoken to me or even seen me before, would want to hurt me for no other reason than the color of my skin. It made absolutely no sense. So I formed this question in my mind, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And I've been looking for that answer now for 52 years. Uh, I could not find the answer in books. But um, I happened to meet a Klansman later on in my, in, in my adult life. I, I majored in music, so I'm a professional musician. And I was playing a gig when this, uh, this gentleman walked up to me and put his arm around my shoulder on the break and uh, said that he had never seen a black man uh, play piano before like uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. And uh, I was not offended, but I was rather surprised because this guy was older than I am. So he was closer to to Jerry Lee's heyday, you know, than I was. And I explained to him, you know, the black origin of Jerry Lee Lewis's style, that he got it from black blues and boogie-woogie piano players, the same place I got it from. Well, the guy did not believe me. He said, you know, Jerry Lee invented that. You know, he'd never heard any black people play like that except for me. And I said, look, man, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a friend of mine. You know, he's told me himself where he learned how to play. Well, the guy didn't believe that either, but he... uh, he invited me back to his table to, to have a drink with him. And uh, he, uh, to him, I was a novelty. And so, you know, I went back to the table, not, not thinking anything. And then he orders my drink and uh, he takes his glass and cheers me. And he says, uh, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. And so I, I asked him why. And at first he didn't answer me. And then his buddy elbowed him in the side, said, tell him, tell him. And the guy looked at me and he said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And, 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 and did you then keep in touch with this guy? Yes, I did. But, no, I mean, I, I would play at that bar. 
uh, about every six weeks with this band that I was working with. So I'd call him on a Wednesday or Thursday and say, hey, man, you know, we're going to be down there on the weekend. Come on out. And he would come. He would bring other Klansmen and, and Klanswomen and, uh, to watch, you know, this black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. It just fascinated him. I, you know, I still had not found the answer to my question from age 10. How can you hate me? We don't even know me. So it dawns on me later, you know, who better to ask that question of to get an answer than to ask someone who would go so far as to join an organization that has practiced hating people uh, for over 100 years. Get back a hold of that guy and get him to, to set you up with the Klan leader, interview the guy, start writing a book, and then travel around the country uh, uh, interviewing different Klan leaders and, and different members. So that's where it started. In a sense that you you wanted to, or you felt that it was worth your while keeping the company of people who, you know, let's be honest, most of them, if they were if they are white supremacists, would yeah. not necessarily give a black person the time of day. And indeed, you know, you may wind up feeling slightly threatened by their company. Well, yes, uh, and I mean you're spot on about that. But here's the thing: the 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 first the, the one that I met there in the bar was was very friendly to me. Very friendly. I mean, yes, he was ignorant, but yes, he was very friendly though. Uh, had I had a bad experience with him, like he had, he had insulted me or he tried to attack me and all that kind of thing, and that was my first encounter, then um, I probably would not have, <laughs> have pursued that avenue, you know? But if, if, if they are going to be as friendly as this guy, then I can, I can talk to them and I can, I can learn from them. And of course, down the road- You can learn from them? What do you mean yes, by that? I want to learn what it is they fear about a Jewish person, about a black person, about a gay person, about a Muslim, about whatever it is they don't like. And once you understand their fears, then you can figure out how to dispel them. And I know that you're resistant to the idea of, of sort of saying that you have converted people. Right. But uh, at the same time, am I right in saying that there are dozens of people who you have got to know over the years who have then left the white supremacist groups that they were in. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, they converted themselves. I was simply the impetus, you know, who planted the seed to give them pause for thought. And what happens is, you know, over time, you know, they begin to humanize you because it's hard to hate somebody, you know, when you're sitting right there in front of them. So now I, I have not attacked them and I've listened to them. And so their wall is down and they're ready to listen to me. That's why I say they convert themselves. And, you know, whites have always been the majority in the United States. But by 2042, this country will be for the first time in our history, 50% white and 50% non-white. And that is very unsettling uh, for people, for, for people of that mindset. And that's why we're see, even before Donald Trump, um, we're seeing a rise in, in recruitment to these groups that are saying, you know, come join us and we're going to take our country back, blah, blah, blah. And see, there are plenty of, of illegal people here in this country from Canada, also from the UK, from Eastern Europe. But these are not the people that the, the white supremacists are talking about. They're talking about people from South America, Mexico, West Africa, things like that, because they don't want their kids uh, marrying one of those people, and then they're going to have brown grandchildren. That's what they're concerned about. 
And, and, and of course, Trump is pandering to their fears about that. So they are afraid they're losing their power. So we have to ask ourselves the question and take on the responsibility. Do I want to sit back and see what my country becomes? Or do I want to stand up and make my country become what I want to see? And I've chosen the latter. A voice like a few others you get to speak to. Um, that was Daryl Davis, black musician, writer, an activist. If you've got thoughts about uh, what he had to say about engaging with white supremacists, do get in touch with us. Uh, at BBC News Hour is the programme's Twitter handle. At BBC Tim Franks is mine. Reminder of our top story this hour, China's warned the UK not to interfere with Hong Kong following the imposition by Beijing of a sweeping new national security law. The chairman of the uh, British Parliament's Defence Select Committee, he's the Conservative MP, Tobias Elwood, told NewsHour what he thinks the British response should be. This is China again dictating international terms and saying, if you want to be our friend, this is how we have to operate. And we in the West need to be less risk averse, less timid. The reason why China has got to its position so far is because we haven't stood up to it over the last sort of 10 to 12 years. One other headline from the BBC newsroom. UN experts have warned that the uh, diseases which jump from other animals to humans will continue to increase if human behaviour does not change. This is NewsHour, live from the BBC. After the US, Brazil has the unwanted garland of being the country hammered hardest by the coronavirus. And there are still very pointed questions being asked in the country as to whether the authorities are anywhere close to getting a grip on the epidemic, whether there is indeed a strategy. Today, the biggest city, Sao Paulo, took a big step towards resuming normal business with bars, restaurants and beauty salons being opened Rick Preen is from the UK, but he's been living in Sao Paulo for 14 years. He owns a British-style pub called Pie in the Sky in uh, the city. Is he opening up again today? I have decided not to reopen. And why is that? Um, I just think it's too soon. Um, I don't think it's safe. Uh, the figures of only this end of last week, beginning of this week, started to even reduce, and that's only by a very small amount. Um, for my opinion here, we've suffered three months of hardship. One more is not, with, excuse my words, going to kill us, but opening might. <laughs> mm. And uh, you, you think that it, it is a case of maybe just trying to stick it out for another month? Uh, in, my, in my personal opinion, yes, definitely. Because um, what you're like, hoping that it will be sorted within a month, or are you, are you saying that you, know, you may not be able to afford waiting much more than four weeks? Um, no, I, I, I'm, what I'm saying is I will think about opening next month, as in August. I'm mm. not saying I will open. Right, right. Well, what I'm saying is I certainly won't be opening this month. <laughs> and why, why is that? I mean, is it not possible to, to open in a way where you sort of, you know, you have precautions in place for you, your staff, and, you know, to try and encourage customers to to socially distance, or is that just not possible in a pub? It's just not possible. You know, I don't have a very, it's not a big pub. It's only a small, it's only for like 50 people. I do have an outside. 
Um, but the problem here at the moment, we're in the middle of our winter, mm. which for us is quite cold. Yeah. Um, people don't want to sit outside in the cold. Mm. Um, a lot of people are still being very irresponsible, as in going to the streets without masks on, without gloves on, still walking with young children with no masks on, on the street. So, you know, I've spent three months in quarantine. I've hardly been out. I see a couple of my friends once a week who we all are stuck in the house for the rest of the week. We have no contact with anybody else. So we've done our three half months hard time. If I open, you need one person to walk in who's irresponsible and been in contact, and we've all got it and wasted three months of quarantine. How far do you get a sense? I mean, there's been a lot of criticism of, of President Bolsonaro and, and his grip on, on COVID-19, and just in terms of how the municipal authorities have been handling things in São Paulo. Well, uh, what, to be what's, honest, what's your, say, what's your view? My, my own personal opinion, I, I, I don't get into politics. I'm not that type of I never did when I lived in the UK. But my personal opinion is they're doing nothing. There's people, there should have been things like free masks, free alcohol, free gloves for people. There's a lot of people in this country that can't afford to buy masks. Mm. You know, they, they either buy food or they buy masks. They're going to buy food. But there's not been much free aid for people. People, uh, awareness, it's always a very confusing, very conflicting stories that come out. Um, one person will say one thing and another the person will say another thing. So you're, you're in this little bubble of, is it true? Is it not? Are you concerned at all? I, I hear it, uh, completely why you're saying that you won't open um, for the next few weeks. Are you concerned at all that you, you know, some competitors down the street might steal a bit of a march on you? Um, no, I'm not concerned about that at all, to be honest. Um, I have a very new, unique situation in San Paulo when I am basically, I am the only English bar that is run by an English person. That I know of, because I'm sure if I say it, somebody will tell me different. Um, I do English food, which isn't done elsewhere. So I have a slightly little niche market. Right. But it's like I said, yeah, I can open. The problem is our customer's going to come. Yeah. And just very briefly, what happens just very briefly, staff, Rick, I mean, if, if, yeah. if you can't open, um, how long can you, basically, can you survive for, do you think? Well, I reckon I can maybe one, two more months. I'm still doing delivery. I'm still doing takeaway. This is just about paying my bills as best as I can. Rick Preen, owner of a British pub called Pie in the Sky in Brazil's commercial capital, São Paulo. The Italian film composer Ennio Morricone has died at the age of 91. He was the soundtrack to some of the most memorable moments, most memorable tunes in cinema history. Newsaz's old theme tune, uh, also used as uh, Sergio Leone's spaghetti western, uh, The Good, the Bad and the Ugly, which featured Morricone's distinctive score. He wrote the music for more than 400 films, uh, worked across all genres. Reading out a statement announcing the news, Mr Morricone's lawyer, Giorgio Asuma, had a personal message from the composer as well. I have been authorised to read you an obituary that Ennio wrote by his own hand. I, Ennio Morricone, am dead. 
I announce it like this to all my friends who have always been close to me and also to those who are distant, who I greet with great affection. Tommy Pearson, who produces and hosts film music events, has interviewed Ennio Morricone. He paid this tribute. Well, we've lost a giant today, no question about it. It's one of those moments, particularly in the film music community, where you have to take a moment to think about the sheer breadth of influence of this man. It was really his, his originality that, that uh, stands out. You know, the film music um, gets a lot of stick for often sounding the same, being a bit Hollywood. And the, the one thing you could really never accuse Morricone of was being Hollywood. And in fact, that was very particular of, of his. Um, he, he never really went there. He always sat apart from Hollywood and always based himself in Rome. Everyone had to come to him. He never went to anyone else. Among the works Ennio Morricone was most proud of uh, was for the film The Mission. He was disappointed it didn't win uh, an Oscar at the time. It still, though, became one of his most memorable scores, and uh, it's how we'll play out this edition of News Hour. From me, Tim Franks, and the rest of the team here in London, thank you very much, as ever, for your company. been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts. This is The Comb. You need The Comb. The Comb, no. Need The Comb. The Comb. The Comb is all about digging deep into one single African story every week. This is like a moment. This is a day for you to celebrate. Stories that might otherwise go underneath the radar, that might otherwise be overlooked. You're in a hurry to get money. You just click OK and that one button lands you into trouble. Stories about Africa and stories that matter. I would walk into a bank for my salary only to be told that I should come back tomorrow because there's no money in the bank. So I decided just to quit. I quit. I hope people will feel the way that I sometimes feel, where you are surprised and you come away kind of like, oh, I really didn't know that. Why would anybody kill somebody over sand? What on earth would make sand so valuable? That's The Comb from the BBC World Service. Just search for The Comb wherever you get your podcasts.